appreciate so much the invitation to come and be with you and to be a part of this series of studies that has been assigned to me to talk about. And I appreciate the fact that you as a church are interested in pursuing these questions and issues that have divided the church in the past, and that's something that's not uh, churches are not willing to do some in many places. I have a lot of ground to cover tonight, so I want to move right on into our study, but the theme that has been assigned to me is the divisions within the Church of Christ. During the Restoration Movement of the 1800s, there were men who began to see the corruption and the problems of denominationalism as they studied their Bibles, and they saw the errors of denominationalism, and so they began pointing men back to the Bible. They would say such things as, where the Bible speaks, we speak, and where the Bible is silent, we are silent. They were asking men to abandon their opinions and unite upon the Scriptures, upon a thus saith the Lord. In the midst of the Restoration Movement, there were two major mindsets that developed among the brethren as they were trying to deal with the questions of coming out of denominationalism and beginning to point men back to the Scriptures. The two mindsets were, one, that the church can do only what is positively authorized in the Scriptures. There was another mindset that developed that said the church can do anything that is not specifically forbidden. Well, you can guess when you have two mindsets, Division was inevitable, and the church did divide in the 1800s. So in the 1800s, the church divided in the mid-1800s. The issues involved were the Missionary Society of 1849, instrumental music of 1859, and the result of that division was the formation of the Christian church. By the turn of the century, the U.S. Census Bureau began to recognize the Christian church as a new denomination, and it's a, a new group that has been formed separate and apart from the churches of Christ, from which they have uh, have uh, come. And so it's a new church that has been developed. That's the result of the apostasy of the 1800s. Later, the more liberal disciples of Christ came along. Well, a hundred years later, let's fast forward. We're going to come back and go through these in detail. But I'm giving you the thumbnail description of history of division. A hundred years after that, in the mid-1900s, the church divided again over such issues as the sponsoring church arrangement called the Herald of Truth and some others. The orphan's home question, colleges in the church budget, and then the social gospel concept, such as church recreation, those kinds of things. The result of that division was the churches split in the 1950s and 1960s. Well, that was beginning to happen by the late 1940s, but the, the bulk of the division took place from about 1955 to 1965. Churches were dividing all across the country, and usually starting off with new small groups, starting over because they began to be aware of the unscriptural things taking place, and we'll talk more about that in our study tomorrow. The end result was, now we have churches of Christ that believe and teach and practice different things. Even in your own city here, as in the city where I preach, there are churches of Christ that stand for the truth of the gospel, and we might label those as non-institutional because they're not supporting these human institutions. There are others that would be called institutional churches of Christ because they support human institutions. More about those in our study tomorrow. So here are the studies that we're going to follow. We have four studies, one tonight and two tomorrow morning, and then one on Sunday afternoon. We're going to talk about the history of the division tonight. And we're going to go back and talk about some things that took place in the 1800s, and I'll tell you why we do that in just a moment. We're going to talk about that controversy of the 1930s on into the 1940s of the college being in the church budget which became kind of a prelude to some of the other things. Then we'll talk about the orphan home question, which came about in the 1950s and the sponsoring church arrangement of the 1950s. And then on Sunday afternoon, we'll talk about the social gospel movement 
and how that's impacting us and affecting us even in our own day. So here's the avenue that we're going to follow tonight. We're going to go back and talk about the Missionary Society and instrumental music. And you may wonder why we want to talk about those if we're talking about some of the current controversy. And I want you to see a parallel with what took place in the 1800s and what took place a hundred years later, and that'll even be parallel with some things that'll take place in our own day and time, even in the future as we talk about the significance of history. Let's talk about the value of, of studying and learning from history. We're going to have a lot of ground to cover tonight. We're going to move at a, ra a rather rapid pace. The nature of the material is we're going to be looking at some, some historical matters. And so I bear, ask you to bear with the material. We're going to look at some scriptures as we go along. And we'll camp on those when we get there, but we're going to look at some historical things along the way. What's the value of knowing our history? The history of the division in the church. Well, as Norman Cousins says, history has or is a vast early warning system. If you understand what happened in history and how men departed from the faith, that gives you a pretty good indication of what's going on in our own day and time. Dwight Eisenhower once said, Neither a wise man nor a brave man lies on the tracks of history and waits for the train of the future to run over him. I say amen to that. How true. We need to be aware of our history because when we know that, we have an indication of what may be coming in the future. Another writer once said that each time history repeats itself, the price goes up. And indeed, that's true. So let's talk about some of the historical matters. Let's begin focusing on the missionary society. Let's talk about the history behind the missionary society. Now, this is going back to the mid-1800s. The mid-1800s in the churches of Christ, what took place? Well, the Missionary Society was born out of a desire to evangelize the world. That was a noble desire because the Great Commission was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And everyone understood that among churches of Christ. There was a crying need for the gospel to be preached in America on the foreign soil. And most everyone would agree, and not enough is being done. We can even say that in our own day and time. We're not doing enough of preaching of the gospel, whether it's in our own community or on foreign soil. And so there's a crying need to preach the gospel. This was true in the 1800s. Well, Alexander Campbell was primarily responsible for introducing the idea of the Missionary Society among our brethren. Alexander Campbell, in 1831, wrote a series of articles in the Millennial Harbinger, and he argued that the church, listen to this carefully, that the church can do what an individual can't, so a group of churches can do what the local church cannot. Follow his argument. Here's what he said. A church can do what an individual disciple cannot, and so a district of churches can do what a single congregation cannot. Do you follow his argument? You see, you're limited in your funds and your ability to accomplish a great deal. But if we band together as a local church, we can do even more. But then if we band a bunch of churches together, then we can do even more. Look at the great good that can take place. Listen to that carefully because we'll see that tomorrow in some things that happened a hundred years later. He went on to say that the New Testament furnishes the principles which call forth our energies but suggest no plan. God told us what to do but didn't tell us how to do it. Watch for that a hundred years later. That was Campbell back in 1831. Well, for the next 10 years, he was primarily silent on that, didn't say a whole lot. So in 1841, he pushed for a stronger, made a stronger push for an organization to come along and help in the work of the church. But we already had the New Testament church, so he's looking for a different organization. He said, I am so deeply penetrated with the necessity of a more intimate organization, Union Corporation, than at the, pre than at the present existing among us. So we already had a church. We need something else in addition to that, that's what he said so that I feel myself duty-bound again to invite the attention of the brotherhood to a more thorough and profound consideration of the subject than they've ever given to it. We already have the New Testament church. We need an organization for cooperation among churches. That's what he said in 1841. Well, it became clear Campbell was wanting a brotherhood organization 
a brotherhood-wide organization through which churches could cooperate, band together for the preaching of the gospel. That's what he'd been calling for since 1831. Well, and from 1880, uh, 1842 to 1848, he wrote a whole series of articles, and time forbids us to go into the details, but there was a whole series of arguments that he made arguing for this church organization, separate and apart from the church, so that by 18 49, and October 23, 1849 was the first Christian Missionary Society. Cincinnati, Ohio, they called it the American Christian Missionary Society. And wouldn't you know it? Alexander Campbell was the first president of that missionary society. Well, see, that came about because he was pushing for that from 1831 up until 1849. Well, let's go a little bit further. Now, there was opposition to that, as you would guess. I've already mentioned the fact that there were two separate mindsets that had developed. One of the strongest voices against it was in the 1820s, Campbell himself. In 1823, Campbell came out against the Missionary Society and said it was wrong. Shades of that happened in the 1940s and 50s, didn't it? We'll come back to that tomorrow. But Campbell had opposed that, but he changed his mind. In 1855, there was a new magazine started called The Gospel Advocate, published right in Nashville, Tennessee, right in our back door right here. Now, the sole purpose and the objective for this magazine being started by Tolbert Fanning and his co-editor, which was William Lipscomb, that's not David Lipscomb, that was David's older brother. He was a co-editor. In 1855, when they started the Gospel Advocate, its sole mission was to oppose the Missionary Society. They were teaching against the, the efforts of bringing the Missionary Society into the church. Now, that's important because we're going to see what the, the role the gospel advocate played all through these controversies on down to the present day. Well, the, let's see, publishing it for a while. In 1866, David Lipscomb took the editor's chair, and that's the same David Lipscomb that started the Nashville Bible School that was later called David Lipscomb College and David Lipscomb University. And he was in the editor's chair a little bit later. We'll come back to him a little bit later in our history. But they opposed that, and they were fighting it. And that's the why the magazine was started, was to oppose the Missionary Society. Now, let's talk about what the Missionary Society is and what it was. Here's what a Missionary Society is. Here you have many local churches, maybe thousands of local churches, that are contributing money to this organization that we call a Missionary Society. Remember, now, Campbell was the president. It had a vice president, secretary and treasurer, board of directors, etc. It had a whole organization. It was not a church. It wasn't the work of preaching the gospel, but the Missionary Society would arrange, oversee, and provide for supporting preachers of the gospel around the world. So what you had with the Missionary Society was a separate organization between the church and the work being done. If this is the first time you've studied these issues, write that point down. You need to remember that. That the Missionary Society was and is a separate organization between the church and the work being done. It wasn't the church. It wasn't the work being done. It was the separate organization between the church and the work being done. That was the Missionary Society. Now, what was the issue then, and what is it now concerning the Missionary Society? The issue was not the preaching of the gospel. The gospel needed to be preached. The issue was not then, and it is not now, the responsibility of the church to evangelize the world. Everyone agreed the church has a responsibility to preach the gospel to the world. The question was not how little was being done. Everyone would agree we're not doing enough to preach the gospel. That wasn't the question. Nor was the question how much good could be done by the missionary society. You see, this church is limited in its funds, but if it contributes to the missionary society, now we have millions of dollars to preach the gospel. That wasn't the question. 
The question was and is, where is the Scripture for the organization between the church and the work that's being done? We're not asking for a Scripture for the church, not asking for a Scripture for the work being done, but for the organization between the church and the work being done. That was the question of the Missionary Society of the 1800s. Now, there were objections to that. I know what it was, I know the history behind it, and I know what it is. What were the objections to the Missionary Society? Well, there was just simply no Bible authority. Now, let's set some groundwork, and then we'll spend less time with this passage in our following lessons tomorrow morning and then on Sunday afternoon. But let's turn to Acts, the 15th chapter, and let's talk about Bible authority for a moment. In Acts chapter 15, the question at hand was, could one who is a Gentile who has not been circumcised be saved without being circumcised? That was the question at hand. When the discussion took place, the text tells us in verse 28, the Holy Spirit is the one who made the decision. This wasn't a voting cat, uh, situation wherein they began to vote that I think and I feel, and let's see how many think that circumcision should be binding. But they made an appeal before God so that the Holy Spirit is the one who made the decision. And how did they arrive at their conclusion? There were three speeches that were made, and there was a speech, first of all, beginning at verse 7 through verse 11, made by Peter. Verse 12 tells us a speech, though it doesn't record the wording of it, but it tells us Paul and Barnabas stood up and they spoke. Beginning at verse 13, there was a speech made by James. And I want to take those in reverse order and let's talk about the things in, found beginning at verse 13. Beginning at verse 13, James made an appeal to a direct statement or a command from God wherein James appeals to Amos 9. What had James said? Well, James said, Simon, I'm reading at verse 14, declared how that God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. With this, all the words of the prophet agree. And he quotes from Amos 9. What did Amos say? Well, let's drop down to verse 17 in interest of time. And so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. What do you mean by the rest of mankind? Still quoting from Amos 9. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. What James says is, I can find a direct statement from God, a direct statement or a command from God that says the Gentiles can be saved. What James was appealing to was a command or a direct statement from God. Now let's go to verse 12. Verse 12 shows that Paul and Barnabas appealed to an approved example. They told in verse 12 how that God had declared miracles and wonders among them as they worked among the Gentiles. When they work among the Gentiles. This is Acts 15. It's talking about chapters 13 and 14, the first missionary journey. And in the first missionary journey, they went and preached to the Gentiles and did not require circumcision. Now, how do I know God approved of that example? Look at verse 12. The miracles and the wonders and the signs. That's how I know the miracles. That's how I know that the preaching they did in not requiring circumcision was approved of God. So they appealed to an example and the miracles that gave God's approval to that. Now let's go to verse 12. Peter begins to talk about the whole household of Cornelius. And he talks about how that God gave them the Holy Spirit even as He did to us. His, his conclusion from that. Not a direct statement from God. But his conclusion was, God made, no, I'm reading it verse 9, distinction between them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. And the Holy Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius that showed and inferred that the Gentiles are now gospel subjects. The same conclusion, by the way, was drawn in Acts 11, verse 15 to 18. So what I'm trying to share with you is, they determine Bible authority by command, example, and necessary inference. 
Those who argue for the new hermeneutic, which is a new way of interpreting scriptures in our day, tell us, they call us the CEI brethren, command, example, inference brethren, because we appeal to command, example, and necessary inference. And they say that's old and out of date. Well, it is old, all right, but it's as old as the New Testament itself. That's what they appeal to, command, example, and necessary inference. So when we're asking for Bible authority, we're either looking for some command or direct statement or an approved example or a passage that necessarily infers that. When it comes to the missionary society, there is no command. There's not a command in all of the Bible about a missionary society. An organization between the church and the work being done, there's not an approved example, there's not a necessary end. Campbell never cited one, nor did anyone else cite one. But here's something else that was wrong with the missionary society. It denies the all-sufficiency of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 15, the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. And that tells me that then that the church can do its own work. The church can send men out to preach, as they did in Acts chapter 13. They sent Paul and Barnabas out to preach. There's something else the church can do without a separate organization. It can support men to preach the gospel. Paul said, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do your service. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8. On another occasion, Philippians 4, that he said, No church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. And so a church can send to a preacher, they can send men out to preach. What men are doing in this concept of the missionary society, men are trying to improve upon God's plans with organizations. Campbell said in 1841, We need some kind of organization that we do not have now. Well, but they already had the New Testament church. They need something better than that. They're trying to improve upon the New Testament arrangement. There's another problem in an objection. It seeks to activate the church in a universal sense. The church in the universal sense is made up of individual Christians. Acts 2 and verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. I'm a member of the universal church, and you are a member of the universal church. It is not made up of local congregations. The, local, the universal church has no officers. It has no work, and it has no organization. If so, what would it be? I can't find anything in the Scriptures concerning that. It has no treasury from which to function. There is no organization in the New Testament larger than the local church. That's important. Let's remember that a hundred years later as we talk about that tomorrow morning. There is no organization larger than the local church in the New Testament. And so what we have is the activation of the church in, in the universal sense. That's what Campbell was trying to do. In fact, Campbell viewed in that series of articles from 1842 to 1848, Campbell viewed the universal church as a group of local churches. He would talk about a district of churches banding together. And he thought of the church, universal, as, as a local church being having membership, and each church had membership within the, in the universal church. That was a perverted concept of the nature of the New Testament church. Let's talk about some arguments that were made to justify that. Here was one. Campbell said it was expedient. The idea was that he said we're told what, but we're not told how. God didn't give us a plan. So therefore, this is expedient. Briney said in the Odie Briney debate in 1908 in Louisville, Kentucky, he said the method is not prescribed. God told us to preach the gospel, but didn't tell us how. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 12. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What I learned from 1 Corinthians 6 and in verse 12, for something to be an expedient that aids us in carrying out the command, it first of all must be lawful. And that's what we haven't shown, is that organization between the church and the work being done to be authorized by the Scriptures. But furthermore, God told us which organization to use. God 
did not tell us how, Campbell said. Brian, he said, it did not tell us how. But he did tell us that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And he did tell us the church is to preach the gospel and said nothing in the New Testament about a missionary society. And that's what was wrong with the missionary society. Here was another argument that was made to justify that, and that is the good that's being done. The idea was the end justifies the means. This way we're doing more work and gospel is being preached. You see, two churches banding together can do more than one. A hundred churches can do more than, than two or three. Thousands of churches banding together and contributing to an organization can do far more good. And so the end justifies the means. Well, you remember the case of us in Second Samuel chapter 6. The end doesn't always justify the means. They're trying to transport the ark back where it ought to be. He's trying to steady the ark lest it fall and be destroyed. It reaches out and touches it. It didn't justify the means, did it? Obviously not. You remember the story. Second John verse 9, we must abide within the doctrine of Christ. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. So if we go outside the realm of the doctrine of Christ, we do not have fellowship with the Father or with the Son. We must abide by authority. But here is another contention that is made, and that is that those who object to this oppose the missionary work. That if you oppose the missionary society, you're against preaching. Well, that was just an absolutely false charge. Those who opposed the American Christian Missionary Society did not oppose preaching at all. And isn't it interesting that they argue that it's an expedient to simply a means or a, me- a mode or a method, but if you object to it, then you're against the preaching itself. How can it be just a method of doing that, but then if you oppose the method, you're opposed to the preaching of the gospel itself? Shades of that happened a hundred years after that. And we'll talk about that in the morning as we pursue our studies then. But here's one more argument along that line. This is a way for churches to cooperate. At the 11 o'clock hour tomorrow, we're going to talk about cooperation and give some illustrations of cooperation that time would fail us to talk about tonight. But the real question wasn't a matter of churches cooperating. The question was one of authority. Where is that passage that talks about the organization between the church and the work being done? That was the real question at hand. So where is it the passage that says churches have to cooperate in this fashion? Campbell argued that we're not cooperating now. Campbell's argument was that when the church here at Collegeview is preaching the gospel and the church at El Bethel where I preach is preaching the gospel, we are not cooperating unless we're pooling our monies together. Where is the passage that says we have to pool our monies together to cooperate? We'll talk about cooperation tomorrow and how that works. And how can we cooperate scripturally? We'll talk about that tomorrow, but there is no passage that tells the churches to do that. So here's what we've seen about the missionary society. We saw the history behind that, what it is, objections to it, and the arguments made to justify that. Let's move on and talk about the instrumental music controversy. We're still in the 1800s. Before we get through tonight, we're going to be in the 1940s, coming on into the 50s before we get through tonight. But we're still in the 1800s talking about the the instrumental music controversy. We're going about 10 years later after the missionary society controversy. Let's talk about the history behind it. There were discussions about its use as early as 1849. Now, that's when the Missionary Society came into play. And what's interesting about that is, by 1849, there's already been a softening approach to Bible authority. When you have men like Campbell arguing for the last 20 years before that, or 15 years before that, since 1831 or so, last several years before 1849, he's been arguing for something that's unscriptural, He's setting the fundamental principle that we don't have to have Bible authority for all that we do. You're going to reap some consequence of that. So in 1849, there was some discussion about that. There are articles in the Christian record that favored its use. Not surprising. 
The ecclesiastical reformer had articles that favored its use, arguing that it ought to be acceptable, and there's nothing really wrong with that. But we come on down to Campbell had dismissed that by 1851, even though he was liberal-minded. He dismissed this as being a real serious issue because it was instrumental music was for those that are not spiritually minded. Here's what he said in 1851. He said instrumental music and worship was well adapted to the churches founded on the Jewish pattern of things practicing infants sprinkling. That all persons singing uh, who have no spiritual discernment, taste or relish for spiritual meditation, consolation, and sympathies of renewed hearts should call for such an aid is but natural. So to those who have no real devotion and spirituality in them and those animal nature uh, flags under the opposition or uh, oppression of the church service, I think instrumental music would be an essential prerequisite to fire up their souls even to animal devotion. But I presume that all spiritually minded Christians, such an aid would be as a cowbell in a concert. Well, Campbell didn't think much of instrumental music, did he? He said, in essence, that's for those that are not spiritually minded. Spiritually minded people won't even entertain the question of, of, of instrumental music. So he kind of dismissed that in 1851. But there was a push for instrumental music in 1851 by the church at, uh, in the church at Millersburg, Kentucky. Here was a man, Elliot Raines. Kind of looks like a mean-looking fellow, but he took a strong stand for the truth. He entered a diary uh, entry in April 27, 1851, where he said, Brother S., that stood for Saunders, wants to introduce the melodeon into the church. He bitterly opposed it. They didn't have it because he had opposed it. You can appreciate men who opposed the innovations that were trying to be brought in. That's in 1851. There had already been discussions a couple of years earlier that it ought to be acceptable among the body of Christ. Well, Everett Ferguson said in the Encyclopedia of the Stone-Campbell Movement that the Sixth Street Church in Cincinnati was using it by 1859. That one didn't get a lot of uh, attention like the, the case that came after that, but that church was already using instrumental music in 1855. Well, we come down to the most noted case of instrumental music being introduced, and that's at Midway, Kentucky in 1859. Let's get a little history of that. This one's interesting. This was the church at uh, Midway, Kentucky in the 1844 to 1895, uh, this was the Church of Christ at Midway. The instrument was introduced by this man, L.L. L. Pinkerton. L.L. Pinkerton was responsible for bringing the instrument in. Earl West, in Search for the Ancient Order, tells us kind of the background to what took place at Midway. The singing was deplorable, he says. So deplorable that some of the members said it would scare even the rats away. Well, I've heard some bad singing. I'm not sure it was that bad, but it would scare even the rats away, they said. So we've got to do something to improve the singing. And what I want to show you is that they introduced the instrument slowly. There already had been little uh, things said along the line about nothing really wrong with it. And are, is it really wrong to have instrumental music? So the singing is deplorable, and it was decided, it was suggested at first that a meeting be held on Saturday night to practice the song. Well, I don't have a problem with that, do you? And shortly afterwards, someone brought in a melodeon. A melodeon, I'll show you a picture in a moment. It's a small portable piano. To use to get the right pitch. Well, I, I have a problem now. Technically, there's nothing wrong with using that to get the pitch any more than our brother used his phone a moment ago to get the pitch. But I see where that might head, can't you? I see danger. I see real danger here. I would have opposed that. But let's go further. Before long, here's the problem. One of the sisters accompanying the singing with her playing on the melodeon. We're just practicing, though. I have a problem that's still worship, but we're practicing. All right. 
The group observed the effect of the use of the melodeon on the singing. It was good on the singing, so it was decided to try the instrument on the Lord's Day worship. And so they introduced it at Midway, Kentucky in 1859. Here's a picture of one of the melodeons I had. Adam Hibbler was one of the elders there. When they brought the melodeon in, he took it out in the front yard and chopped it to pieces with an axe. I like that kind of elder. I like that kind of elder. Well, they bought a new one and put it in its place, and Hitler took it out and put it in his barn. The third one was, was put in the building, and the building burned, and that melodeon burned, and this is the second one that's found in the barn. It's on display in one of the colleges there at Midway, Kentucky. Well, this is the present building at Midway, Kentucky. It's now called the Midway Christian Church. And what's a couple of things interesting about that. This stained glass right here, this is a blown-up version of that. The picture they have featured, the man they have pictured there, it's not a picture of Jesus or some great apostle, L.L. Pinkerton, the man that introduced the instrument. I visited there about 1985, and along with Steve Wolfgang and some others, uh, Steve is a historian, and we went to the building and we met the preacher there, and he had no clue about the history of the church. And we said, is there any old historical things in there that we might, oh yeah, there's some old record books. And he went and pulled out an old record book, leather bound, and he said, isn't this interesting? We used to be called a church of Christ, but now we're a Christian church. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how that happened. Well, we kind of explained the history to him. We knew how that happened. We knew the history of that church that he didn't know. Well, it used to be a church of Christ. Well, this is because they introduced instrumental music as one of the reasons that they became a Christian church. Well, let's talk about the reaction to that instrument being used in the church. Well, the reaction was it promoted discussion and debate. J.W. McGarvey and A.S. Haddon and the Millennial Harbinger had a, uh, a discussion. They had a number of debates, and or exchanges, that is. Here's what McGarvey said about the instrument. He said, we cannot therefore by any possibility know that a certain element of Christian uh, of worship is acceptable to God in Christian dispensation when the scriptures of which speak of that dispensation are silent in reference to it. To introduce any such element is unscriptural and presumptuous. It is will worship that any such thing as will worship can exist. And on this ground, we condemn the burning of incense, the lighting of candles, the wearing of priestly robes, and the reading of printed prayers. And on the same ground, we condemn instrumental music. What he's saying is the Bible doesn't authorize it, and since the Bible is silent, it cannot be authorized. Well, McGarvey was absolutely right about that. What about that in a moment? Interesting now. The gospel advocate that had been started to fight the missionary society they're still fighting. David Lipscomb now is opposing instrumental music because there's no Bible authority for it. No Bible authority for that. In 1908, there was a debate between Briney and W.W. Uh, uh, Odie and J.B. Briney in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the most noted debates of the time. But now this is interesting. When you think issues don't really matter, there was the middle road view who said, well, we shouldn't have the instrument, but we're not going to oppose it and we're not, we're, we can still fellowship one with another. Isaac Everett of uh, the Christian Standard took that view, but so did McGarvey take that view. McGarvey said it was wrong. He taught against it, but he fellowshiped those who used it. Here's a lesson out of history. Listen to me carefully. Henry Ficklin, who was a student of McGarvey at the uh, Bible school he started, which is now UK, University of Kentucky, is the outgrowth of that college, the Bible college he started. McGarvey's, one of McGarvey's students, Henry Ficklin, said in 1967, when asked, do you remember any, any one person, any student he ever converted because of his teaching against the instrument? Ficklin said, not a single one. Because his influence did not go with his teaching, it went with his fellowship. 
Don't ever think that you can fellowship error and you're going to teach the people out of that. Your influence will always go with your fellowship against your teaching. Always will happen. It happened to McGarvey. So the division was the formation of the Christian church. Out of that came M.C. Um, Curfee's book on instrumental music. Let's talk about why instrumental music is unscriptural. We'll see some parallels to this tomorrow. Let's talk about what's wrong with instrumental music. First of all, it's not authorized. Remember this? Command, example, and inference from Acts 15. There is no command, there is no example, and there is no inference. If there is none of that, then it's not authorized. But let's talk about God specifying singing. We're going to see a parallel to this one tomorrow as well. Let's talk about the generic and specific authority. Here's how authority works. That when God specifies something, then when God is specified, that eliminates all others in that generic. Or if God leaves something in the generic, we're at liberty to choose the specifics. Let me give you some examples of that. When God told Noah to build an ark, Genesis 6:14, had God said make an ark of wood, he could have chosen any kind of wood. We understand that, couldn't he? Oak, pine, cedar, whatever he wanted to use. But when God specified cedar, or gopher wood, that eliminates him using any other kind of wood. Can we see that? All right. When it comes to a matter of washing in a river that you might be cleansed, in the case of Naaman, 2 Kings 5, had God said river, any river would have worked. Jordan River, Bano Farper River. But in that God specified Jordan, even Naaman recognized. That eliminated all the other rivers, didn't he? Well, let's talk about this offering. In Leviticus 14, had God said animal, any animal would work. But in that God specified lamb, that eliminates all other kind of animals. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to the matter of praise. Had God said offer music before God, we could sing, we could play, we could hymn, a hum, or we could whistle, couldn't we? But in that God specified singing, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, that eliminates all other kinds of music, not only instrumental music. That's why we don't whistle in our worship. And that's why we don't hum in our worship. For the very same reason we don't have instrumental music. Because God specified singing. It's not authorized. There's not a passage that authorized mechanical instruments of music. The only thing God has authorized is singing. But let's go a step further. And let's talk about the fact that instrumental music serves as an addition because another element has been added. I'm trying to lay some groundwork for our application tomorrow. The Bible repeatedly tells us from beginning to end, by that I'm talking about from the Pentateuch down to the book of Revelation, you don't add to nor take from. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. Moses said you should not add to or diminish aught from it. Well, when we come to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, you don't add to the words, nor do you take away from the words. And then in between we have, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more, Balaam said to the servants of Balak, Numbers 22, 18. So we can't add anything to the Word. Well, let's understand this principle that an addition involves another element being added. If this is your first introduction to understanding the difference between aids and additions, understand that an addition is another element being added to the Word of God. Let me illustrate. God gives us a command to eat bread, that is the Lord's Supper. When we use an aid, we're doing nothing more than what God says. We might use a table, as you have here. We might use plates, as I assume you use on Sunday morning. But when we add another element like jam or beef or cola, now we have another element added, and that serves as an addition to the Word of God. You say, where's the Bible authority for the plates and for the table? That's inherent within the command, an aid to carry out the command. But when we add jam, blackberry jam to the bread, now we have an addition because another element has been added. Can you see that? So the same thing is true in the matter of baptizing. We might use a baptistry or a heater. And when we do that, we're doing nothing more than what God said. But when we add another element, such as sprinkling, now we have an addition to the Word of God, and that's not authorized. 
in the building of the ark. You might use a tool or an animal. We're doing nothing more than what God said. We add another kind of wood, another element has been added. And now we have an addition. Well, the same thing is true with the matter of singing. In the matter of singing, we might use books as we do, did tonight. We might use a tuning fork, as our brother did a few moments ago. Or we might use an electronic hymnal, as you did. We're doing nothing more than what God said, but then when we add instrumental music, or we whistle, or we hum, another kind of music has been added, and now we have an addition to the Word of God, which is forbidden. But let's go even further. We see what's wrong with instrumental music. Let's go to our final point, and let's spend the rest of our time talking about the college and the budget. I'm trying to give some background, historical background, to the problems that came about in the 1950s and 1960s. Let's talk about the college and the church budget. When we talk about the college and the budget, we're talking about colleges being supported out of the church treasury. Now, that was one of the first, if not the first, of the institutional issues after the turn of the century. Because the Missionary Society had already taken place in the 1800s, and the instrumental music question has already taken place in the 1800s. But after the turn of the century, then the real first institutional issue that came about in the development of the mid-1900s was the college and the church budget. When we talk about the college and the church budget, most of the colleges that are operated among brethren today, among members of the Church of Christ, are supported out of the church treasury. Such colleges as David Lipscomb and Freed Hardeman, Harding and Abilene Christian and Oklahoma Christian, all of those are supported out of the church treasury. Let's give a little of the history behind that. Well, the history behind that is simply that there were early schools that had some church support. Didn't get a good grounding for uh, didn't take off, that is, among brethren at first. There was the Kentucky Female Orphan School in 1849, operated by, you remember the name? L.L. Pinkerton operated that school. Well, he wouldn't have had a problem at all with church supporting that, and they did receive some church support, but that wasn't widespread. That was in 1849. This was, in, this was kind of odd, because Fanning Orphan School, that was operated by Tolbert Fanning, 1884, he's the one that started the Gospel Advocate, 1855, to oppose the Missionary Society along with William Lipscomb. He later received some church contributions to his orphan school. But it wasn't widespread. That kind of support wasn't widespread. G.C. Brewer, if you want to know a little about church history and, and what brought some of this about, G.C. Brewer played a heavy role in getting the churches to put the college in the budget. In 1933, 1935, and 1938. 1933, G.C. Brewer said this. He said, he wrote a series of articles on organizations in the Gospel Advocate. Now, well, this is interesting. That's the same paper that opposed the Missionary Society. They called it the Old Reliable. That's the same paper that opposed instrumental music. Now, by 1933, is endorsing the church support of colleges. Old Reliable is not as reliable as it used to be by 1930. And he wrote this series of articles saying that the churches had a right, to, the colleges had a right to exist, and churches should support them. Two years later, he made an appeal for churches to put the college and the orphan homes in the budget. And he said there were some churches, for example, at uh, Claiborne and, at, uh, and Sherman in Texas where he preached, and there were two in Ohio that were doing the same thing. And so here's some churches already doing that. You need to do the same thing. But in 1938, that's an important date to remember, at the Abilene Christian College lectures, he urged elders to put Abilene Christian College in the church budget, and any church that didn't have the college in the budget had the wrong preacher. He meant business. We're ready to put the college in the church budget. Well, it wasn't widespread at first. That didn't take off like you, he thought it would. And they didn't put the college in the budget. And most of the brethren didn't agree with that. The college was a hard sell to put the college in the budget. It wouldn't be a hard sell now, but it was in 1938. 
It was a hard sell because it didn't have the emotional play. So 1947 was another turning point in the question. It was a turning point because Abilene Christian College was making a strong push. We need the college in the church budget. We need the money. But here was the man, you may recognize N.B. Hardiman. He, along with A.G. Freed, started Freed Hardiman College. And he turned the issue on the orphan home. Here's what he said in 1947. N.B. Hardiman said that the right to contribute to one is the right to contribute to the other. The same principle that permits one permits the other. They stand or fall together. He said that in the Gospel Advocate, the old reliable. You know what? He was right. He was absolutely right about that. But he wasn't opposing them. He was endorsing both of them. In other words, he shifted the issue from the college in the budget of what uh, Brewer was saying in 1938 and shifted it to the orphan home so that he made the orphan home a more sellable issue, if that's such a word. I'm not sure if that's a word. Is that correct? I'm going to use it anyway. It's a sellable issue in this sense that we can sell the brethren on the orphan home, but we can't sell them on the church support of colleges. This one has emotion. And so they used it as a tool to get to the college, you see. If these stand or fall together, if we can get brethren to approve of this, and they did, then we can get them to approve of this, they stand or fall together. And so they used the orphan home to sell the college to the churches. Well, there was opposition to that. The Bible banner. Under the leadership of Foy Wallace, Jr. and the Gospel Guardian under Wallace and Roy Cogwell. They were debated in 1954, W.L. Toddy and Charles Holt debated that. But in 1963, Baxter wrote a book called Questions and, Answers and, uh, Questions and Issues of the Day in Light of the Scriptures. In 1963, he made the same argument that Hardiman did. He said, some who are agreed that the church can contribute to an orphan home have not con are not convinced that the church can contribute to a Christian school. It is difficult to see, the, uh, to see a significant difference so far as the principles are concerned. The orphan's home and the Christian school stand or fall together. Well, Baxter was right about that. But again, he was trying to sell people on the idea that you need to contribute to the college. Well, to come a little bit further, in 1968, Athens Clay Pullius wrote a track. The pack track was published by David Lipscomb College. Now, that's the college started by David Lipscomb, who had opposed the Missionary Society. He had opposed that. But now the college, by the way, by the way, that's the same college that is producing some women preachers now. Same college. That's how far they've gone. But he published a track arguing for the church being in the college uh, budget in 1968. Now, here's what we ended up with after all that controversy. Here are colleges that accept church contributions. Freed Hardeman over here in Henderson, Tennessee. Harding at Searcy, Arkansas. Lipscomb in Nashville. Oklahoma Christian in Oklahoma City. Abilene Christian College in Abilene, Texas. All received church support out of the church, tre uh, out of church treasury. There was one that did not, and that was Florida College. Florida Christian College, then called. Now it's called Florida College under the leadership of James R. Cope. I'm not here to advocate the college. I'm not their biggest supporter. But I have to say something about the work of Jim Cope. He was not their first president, nor was he the last. But he served as president from 1949. He was the youngest president in, in the country at the time, in, in, uh, in 32 years of age. Served in 1982. But pressure was put on. Strong pressure was put on for them to start receiving contributions out of the church treasury. And in 1956, in the spring of 56, Jim Cope stood up in a board meeting and faced one of the board members he was putting pressure on. He said, sir, my soul is not for sale, nor is this college. Well, I'm not a big supporter of the college. 
But I tell you what, I have to admire a man like Jim Cope. And if you send your children there, you've got a place to send your children because of men like Jim Cope who stood firm for the truth. And they said, we're not going to let that happen here. And that's the only one that did not accept church contributions. Let's talk about the mission and the work of the church. Let's open our Bibles and talk about the fact that the work of the church has to be determined by God. It is not determined by men. What we mean by that is that we have a pattern to follow. You remember Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 5? Where Paul writing, if he be the writer, and I think he is, of the book of Hebrews, says that all things concerning the building of the tabernacle were to be made according to the pattern. The point is that all things now are to be made according to the pattern. God has a pattern to follow. Whether it be the building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple, or building of the church of the Lord, all things have to be done according to the pattern. God has given us a pattern. Campbell said that we didn't have one. But we do have a pattern. Puglia said we didn't have a pattern. Christ has all authority, both in heaven and on earth. Matthew chapter 28. He's the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 1. We take our direction from Him. We must abide within the doctrine of Christ. And what I'm trying to establish is, the work of the church is determined by God and not by man. We don't just sit down and say, you know what, I think we ought to contribute to whatever, because we think it's a good work. The work is determined by God Himself. Now let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 12. And I want to share with you that when it comes to the work of the church, there are other passages that talk about the work of the church, and we'll work them in just a moment. But in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, we have all three works that are mentioned in verse 12 concerning the work of the church. There is the equipping of the saints, in verse 12. There is the work of the ministry, and there's the edifying of the body of Christ. Let's talk about what each one of those are. Here's a threefold work that God has laid out for the church. There is the equipping of the saints. That just simply means that the word means to repair or to put in order or to make complete. It is the idea of edifying, that is, building up in the sense of correcting and mending things that may be amiss in our lives. It's the same principle of verse 16 of the same text, that the church may edify itself in love. So the church is to be involved in the work of edification. Secondly, there is the work of ministry. That's the same word that means benevolence. It's translated so in other passages. Acts 6. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, it means to serve. It's the same principle of Acts 6 where the church took care of its own needy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, they took care of those widows indeed. The church is to be involved in the work of benevolence. But then there is thirdly mentioned the edifying of the body. The word edify simply means the building up. The American Standard Version so translates that. To increase by teaching. That is, edifying or building up by teaching the same principle of 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. It's to be involved in the work of evangelism. And so we have in Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 12, the work is of edification, benevolence, and evangelism. Now let's talk about what the work of the church is not. It is not social. There's not a passage there because there is no passage that tells us the church is to be involved in the social work. We'll talk about that on Sunday afternoon. That is, to be involved in the social betterment of man. And isn't it interesting, 1 Corinthians 7 shows me the gospel didn't change social conditions. That is, if you were a slave when you obeyed the gospel, you remained a slave. If you were a master, you remained a master. It didn't change social conditions. The gospel didn't do that. The home was the center of social activities, 1 Corinthians 11. We'll see that Sunday afternoon. The church is not to be involved in the work of recreation. There is no passage there or in business or in secular education, such as math and science and history and language. That's not the work of the church. But let's go a step further. Let's talk about some of the problems with church support of colleges. What was wrong with that? Well, here's the issue that's clarified. Let's clarify what the issue is. The issue was not, do colleges have a right to exist? There are some brethren who question whether or not a 
you can have a Bible college operated by brethren. That wasn't the question then. That might be a question, but that wasn't the question in the 1930s. It is not a question my individual Christians contribute to those colleges. That was never the question. Nor was the question the corruption in them or what is taught. There's many things that are taught in these colleges. Uh, from uh, evolution at Abilene Christian College, to women preachers at David Lipscomb College, and a host of other errors that have been taught. That was never the question about are there, is there error taught or is there corruption in the schools, but the question was, do the Scriptures authorize churches to contribute to a Bible college? That was the question in the 1930s and the 1940s. Now, here was the problem with that. There is no Bible authority. I come back to Acts 15 again. Remember where they appealed to command, example, and inference? We won't go back and develop that, but there is no command, there is no example, there is no inference for church support of, of Bible colleges. You can't find a direct statement from God, you can't find an example, and there's no passage that infers that. So that was what was wrong with that. But I want to share with you that there is no difference between this and what we had in the missionary society. Let's go back to the missionary society as we begin to close. In the missionary society, what you had was various local churches contributing to the missionary society, a separate organization between the church and the work that was being done of supporting preachers to preach the gospel. Now, what do you have in the Bible college? You have several local churches contributing to a separate organization between the church and the teaching of the Bible. It's the same principle. Can you see much difference in, in this over here that we had of the missionary society and what you have in the Bible school where you have a separate organization between the church and the work being done. If one is scriptural, so is the other. If one is wrong, then so is the other. An interesting, old, reliable gospel advocate opposed this. That's why they started, but they endorsed this for the 1930s. What was the difference in the two? There was no difference. It puts the church in the secular business. By that would simply mean, while it is a Bible college, it is. They do teach the Bible. It's still a secular education that's being funded. The funds support the whole college work. So here's a summary of the objections. There's no Bible authority, the work is secular, and there is an organization between the church and the work being done. We'll see some parallel to that in our studies tomorrow. Let's talk about some arguments that were made to justify that, and then the lesson will be yours. One of the arguments made to justify the college in the budget was that colleges teach the Bible, and that's the work of the church. Well, the Bible is not all that they taught, and that's not all that they teach. It is a secular institution. It is a liberal arts college. But even if that's the work of the church, let's just suppose, for argument's sake, that all those secular subjects are the work of the church. You still have a separate organization between the church and the work being done. If the church needs to teach math, let's teach math. If the church needs to teach geography, let's teach geography or language or whatever it may be, Spanish, whatever may be taught in these schools, then let the church be teaching that. You don't need a separate organization between the church and the work being done. Here's another argument that was made. The school prepares church leaders, such as preachers and elders, etc. That was one of the arguments that was made. Well, that's not all that these colleges do. They do much more than prepare church leaders. And again, if that's what the church is supposed to be doing, you have a separate organization between the church and the work being done. On that same basis, what about those families that are preparing young preachers and elders? Then let's just support any family that does that, because the church is supposed to support that. Would that work? That's not going to work at all. Here's another argument that was made, and that is that churches may educate the children of poor members. And so there are poor members that can't send their children to college, so let's support the college so that the poor members can send their, their children to the college. Well, could we contribute to a Catholic or Baptist hospital for poor members? If not, why not? You know, the Catholics do operate at known hospitals, and so do the Baptists own hospitals. Could we contribute to those hospitals? 
And we're just going to make a monthly contribution to the hospital so that when our poor members have a, a sickness or need, they can just go to the hospital. Think, Does that work? Could, they contribute, could we contribute to a golf course? Because poor members have children need recreation like the rest. The children don't. Would that work? Here's another argument that was made, and that is the schoolwork is a good work. A good work, I might remind you, is defined by scriptures. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. It is the good work if it is defined by scriptures. Is government a good work? Well, God ordained government, didn't he? Can we contribute to the government? I don't think pay taxes. Can we, out of the church treasury, just contribute to the government? Would the Baptist hospital be a good work? What about building roads? What about building roads? Would that be a good work? To get to work, get to school, go to church? Can we contribute to the uh, building of roads? What about space exploration? Could we do that? Could we support that out of the church treasury? And one last argument, and we're done. And that is, the argument is made that the Bible does not forbid it. Well, the silence of God is prohibited. Let's turn to one last passage here in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Our Lord cannot be a priest on earth, chapter 8 says, of the book of Hebrews, because he was not of the right tribe. What about of the tribe of Judah? Well, the Lord spake nothing concerning priesthood. That tells me the silence of God is not permissive, but the silence of God is prohibited. The fact the Bible does not forbid it doesn't authorize us to do that. You remember the Bible did not forbid the instrument of, uh, use of instrumental music, did it? If so where is the passage that says thou shalt not have it? Well, we can have instrumental music. And by the way, some churches of Christ are having that now, along with the women preachers, etc. We'll talk more about that on Sunday afternoon. And the Lord did not forbid specifically the use of jam on the Lord's table, did he? Do you remember the passage where he said thou shalt not have blackberry jam on the Lord's table? I don't remember that. I don't remember a passage that says you can't have that. So since the Bible didn't forbid it, then we ought to be able to have the thing. Well, we can put the college in the budget, then we can put Blackberry Jam on the Lord's table. What's the difference? There is not. And so here is the history behind the church support of the college. We saw the mission work of the church, the problems with the church support of the college, and the arguments made to justify that. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground tonight. We've covered the Missionary Society and instrumental music, and those were issues back in the 1800s. And then we introduced one of the first institutional questions of the 1930s, and that's the college in the budget. Lord willing, it, is it 9.30 in the morning? 9.30, we'll be talking about the orphan home question. And so we'll slow the pace down a little bit and, and focus a little more on that question. And we'll follow that with a study of the, at 11 o'clock, I think it is, that we'll talk about the sponsoring church arrangement and what was involved in that. What, what is the sponsoring church arrangement? And then on Sunday afternoon, we're going to talk about um, the matter of the social gospel. What was involved then and what's involved now and how far has it gone? We'll talk about all of that then on Sunday afternoon. Come back and be with us for those studies. There may be one or more present tonight who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing? Thank <laughs> you.